Angie's List is now Angie, and caring for your home just got easier. Whether you need help with routine maintenance or a dream remodel, Angie makes it easy to see reviews, compare quotes, and connect with top local pros who can get the job done right. Plus, you can see upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. No phone tag, just the work you need done at a time that works for you. Angie's got your to-do list covered from start to finish. Book your next home project today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You know I'm right. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese. Joe, in your line of work, you get paid to listen to this, this gentleman on a daily basis, or at least when his team is playing the games. Why don't you let everybody know who our guest is today? Yeah, they had me doing Islanders games quite a bit last year, which was fun. Obviously, coming off back-to-back runs to the Eastern Conference Finals and the semifinals, uh, and especially now that he does playoff games, uh, he's much more well-known. He's currently the voice of the New York Islanders. He's broadcast games since 2016 with uh, legendary Butch Goring, got to replace the legendary Howie Rose, and we wish Howie Rose you know, the best with his recent health issues. Uh, again, also covered games for NBC Sports, uh, done a lot of minor league work in the, the past, so we'll get to talk about that too. Really, really happy to have him on. Uh, Mr. Brendan Burke. Brendan, good morning. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm still amazed that I get paid for what I do. So if somebody gets paid for listening to what I do, we're, we're on a whole nother level. I just need to uh, wrap my brain. It's Joe. It's Joe's job right there. <laughs> yes, I am a content assistant for now. Technically, it's Disney streaming. It used to be BAM Tech. And uh, I do a lot of stuff uh, regarding NHL.com and kind of restructured the company now a little bit here in the last couple of weeks, but uh, I used to do that. And I used to do stuff for MLB.com, which I no longer do anymore. So uh, that's my side of things. And yes, I do get to listen to you and I get to watch you mostly on a nightly basis. I get to watch the Knicks, uh, the, uh, the Rangers and the, the Islanders a lot. So. All right. As long as you're choosing the right calls on all these, we're, we're all set. <laughs> yeah. So if you ever, if you ever want to go like the next day and check out some highlights, it's because of this guy, Joe, right here. He's, he's picking the calls and everything. Send in all right. If I screw up, if I screw up, make sure that those never see the light of day. All right. You don't screw up often. You're actually very, very good. You're one of the best in the business, what you do. And I mean, that's pretty obvious now because anybody who gets or anybody who was asked for, for NBC purposes to do playoff games and, and other games and stuff like that, uh, you must be very, very good at your job. And you definitely are. You're definitely one of the best in the business. And, you know, unfortunately, Nick and I are Rangers fans, but you do make Islanders games fun to, to listen to. So. <laughs> I, I will I will take that for for sure. If, I, if it's come from Ranger fans, I'll take it. Brendan, do you know yet if if you're going to be on the road with the team this season, and you know what kind of challenges did you have calling games off monitors? Yeah, I, I think there's still some details being worked out on everything uh, around the league, so hopefully get some clarity on that here soon. Um, but you know, working off a monitor was something that um, you never want to do. It's it's never never preferred. Um, it was nice to be home a little bit more, which, um, you know, I had a baby in November, so it was, it was actually kind of fortuitous to be home as much as I was around that time. Um, granted the season hadn't even started at that point, but, um, in the early goings, um, but it's just, it's just a challenge. Like I think sometimes when people hear, oh, they're calling games off monitors, they think I'm sitting in this control room with a wall of monitors and can look at it. I'm literally doing, I I could be sitting next to you on your couch. I'm not seeing anything that you're not seeing 
seeing and I'm do, trying to do my job off off that. So um, you you really learn which cities have good cameramen and which cities do not. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, it, the puck, if the puck leaves the screen when I'm in person, not a big deal, right? Like if it takes a bit just for the, the camera to follow it and I'm watching and I'm tracking, not a big deal. But when I'm relying on that, um, it's a different story. So, um, you know, it's, 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 it presents its challenges. I think I got a little more comfortable as the season went along and trying to, to get through some of that. And you just kind of delay your call, kind of talk your way through it. If you need an extra second, um, you know, you miss penalties because they're behind the play and the, the referee with his arm up, you don't see, and you're like, Oh, there's a whistle. I think there's a penalty, I guess, um, <laughs> you know, guys sneaking off on line changes, guys that get hurt, scuffles behind the play fights, things like that. Like you, you lose, a lot of that stuff, guys limping to the bench and you, you can't even mention it because you don't see it. You know, so there are things that you lose and, and, and it's much better to be in person, but um, hockey off monitor is better than no hockey at all. So we, we did, what we had to do to get through the season and hopefully we can get a little more normal here moving forward. Right. And, you know, you've been doing hockey for a while, so you're very used to the team. So as you mentioned, you kind of maybe fill a few seconds here or there if you had to, but the Olympics, a whole different story. How is it, you know, doing the Olympics from a little closet in Connecticut? Yeah, it was, uh, I, I guess I don't have anything to compare it to. Like I've never done an Olympics in person and I've, I've never done rowing or canoeing uh, in my life until then. Um, so this is really my only experience at it, but it, it was a great, it was, um, you know, so many people were involved in the production of the Olympics, as you might imagine. Um, and so many of them were in Stanford, Connecticut for, for almost three weeks, like I was um, working at all hours of the night. Tokyo's 13 hours ahead. So um, you know, races at nine o'clock in the morning for me were 8 p.m. in Connecticut. And so I was one of the first people to get to work at night, um, worked like eight till midnight, eight till one in the morning for the races. And then on my way out, I would see, you know, Kenny Albert coming in to do, um, you know, his stuff. I would see Paul Burmeister coming in to do water polo. I would see Ed Cohen coming in to do weightlifting and they were coming in for, you know, matches at two o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, things like that. Um, and I was on my way home to, uh, to prep for the next day and to get to bed. But, um, you know, NBC did a really, really good job of trying to um, make it a, a great experience for the people that were there. Uh, I think the night of opening ceremonies, they brought in sushi. Like they just had, um, you know, candy imported from Japan to try and make you feel a little bit more like you were there. Um, and they really did a nice job to make it a, a great experience, considering that we were in Stanford, Connecticut, and not in Tokyo. Kenny Albert, a former guest on our show, I, there was a historic moment in this Olympics where, because uh, obviously daytime here and things weren't live, where Kenny Albert uh, threw to himself. He went from one event to broadcasting <laughs> to another. And I don't know if that's ever been done before, Olympic history. Quite yeah, probably, probably not. I, he was doing volleyball, right? And then um, they added on some baseball games to him. So I think that he was he was originally only supposed to do volleyball. Then he wound up getting a couple extra baseball games because he's as good as it gets with so many different things. Um, so, yeah, the unique circumstances for sure. Uh, normal, normally, though, uh, you know, Kenny and I have thrown to each other for hockey games, but I don't think anybody ever pictured Kenny Albert throwing a volleyball match to me doing canoeing. Uh, that was probably something that most people weren't, weren't ready for. Right. A little, little too, a little, you know, not too far away from now is the winter Olympics. Do you know if you'll be involved in that at all doing hockey? We'll, we'll, we'll find out. I'm, I'm not actually sure. So we'll, uh, we're, we're still got a little bit of time. It's going to be exciting though. Right, Joe, we got the NHL players finally back. Uh, yeah, that was like something that they honestly really wanted. And um, I'm glad that they were able to hash that out because you know, the Olympics, I, I think 
needed the players. The we did the Winter Olympics uh, back when so I think it was like 2018, right? And I mean, it, it just it clearly was not the same. There, there was no jolt to it. Um, a lot of players are always very happy and proud to represent their countries in the game. So hopefully that'll be different. And hopefully, Brendan, you'll be asked to, to do it again because we know that the NBC does not have the coverage of the NHL anymore. We know that has been taken away. It is now to ESPN and Turner. So, you know, hopefully that'll eventually sort itself out and you'll have the opportunity presented to yourself to do that again. Hey, the way I'm looking at it is either I'm, I'm doing Olympic hockey or I get a nice long vacation in the middle of the hockey season. So either right. way, yeah. Wow. It's a win-win. <laughs> so you are an Ithaca College grad, studied journalism there. When did you make the decision, was it before college, during college, that you said, hey, I want to pursue a career in an on-air capacity somehow? Nine years old. Um, I was nine years old when I made that, that decision and uh, never wavered. Um, you know, I grew up, my dad's a sports writer, he works for the New York Post, and I grew up um, around New York City. Uh, my dad was actually the Yankees beat writer for first the Bergen Record, then the New York Star Ledger. And so I kind of grew up around sports media um, and was afforded some incredible opportunities as, as a young child to, you know, be in that, that area where, you know, be exposed to it, where I don't know if a lot of kids are. And so I, um, at nine years old, had the opportunity to go to Fenway Park with my dad. You know, it was summertime. My birthday's in July. And, you know, if it were short road trips, we would go and hang out with dad. And so um, I went to a game at, at Fenway Park and my dad had to work. So it's not like I could sit there on his lap while he was, uh, he was doing his, his work. But uh, he found me a pretty good seat. And the seat that he found me was directly between John Sterling and Michael Kay while they called the game on radio. They were together on radio at that point. Now, obviously separate on TV and radio, but uh, they worked together. This is back in the early 90s. Um, and that's where I watched the game from. And to have that experience and to watch these guys do it. Um, and then shortly after that experience, I found out they got paid to do that, um, which <laughs> blew my nine-year-old mind that that was their job, right? There are doctors and lawyers and, and, and firemen and that they sit there in the best seat in the house and talk about baseball and they get paid for it. Um, and ever since that moment, uh, that's what I've always wanted to do. And, you know, everybody's like, Oh, wait till you get to college. You'll change your mind. You know, things, interests will change and you're just a kid. And um, the only thing it did was I wanted to do it more. And the more I learned about it, the more I started doing it, the more I, I wanted to be involved with it. And so um, I'm fortunate enough to have, you know, that story of being a nine-year-old kid that decides what he wants to do. And then, actually getting to do it. So um, when I say this is my dream job and then I'm living the dream, uh, it, it's I'm not just saying that. It is actually what I dreamed about as a kid that I wanted to do, and, and here I am doing it. So I wanted to bring up your dad for a second because you moved to Fairlawn. Now, I don't know what age you moved to Fairlawn, but uh, you were actually born in Wisconsin, and your dad was a sports writer there first, right? So he covered the major teams there, the Packers, obviously in Green Bay, the Brewers, uh, they don't have a hockey team, but they do have an American Hockey League team. So uh, he started there, and then when he when you guys moved here, he was able to get that rec uh, the job at the Bergen Record. Yep, that's pretty cool. Uh, so Nick mentioned you went to you you went to Ithaca. Uh, what kind of internships did you do there? What kind of stuff were you involved in on campus, and uh, what kind of things did you do and connections did you make? that ultimately helped you transition and, and find your first job outside of college? 
Yeah, uh, most of what helped me was actually what I did at Ithaca. And, you know, Ithaca College is, is a great program. It has two student-run radio stations and a student-run television station where there is one faculty member that is in charge of all of that, that just kind of oversees things. But, um, you know, there is uh, there's elections and you are the sports director, you are the station manager, you are whatever. They're all students, usually older, you know, upperclassmen. Um, you know, actually, um, you know, Ed Cohen, who's the voice of the New York Knicks on radio, um, Ed is a year ahead of me in school. And so my sophomore year, I was the sports director of one radio station and Ed Cohen was the sports director of the other radio station, um, which is pretty cool. Now we bump into each other in the city or at MSG networks meetings and things like that, that we can look back and go, yeah, remember when we were, we were running student radio stations at Ithaca? Um, but you, you do everything, uh, you know, on the air, off the air um, is all student run. And so I did everything you could possibly do. I did uh, sports updates starting the first week of my freshman year on the radio stations. I hosted morning shows. I DJed, you know, late night shows. Uh, I was on, you know, the TV staff. I did field hockey, halftime shows. I mean, I, I, whatever it was, I did it. I would actually just sit there in the meeting like this with my arm up the whole time, volunteer for whatever they wanted me to do. Cause that's what I knew. That's what I was there for. I wasn't there to, um, you know, take a math class. I was there to broadcast games. And so that's what I did um, as much as I could to get as much reps as I could. Um, and I walked out of college with a lot of experience that I think a lot of kids didn't get. The toughest thing about broadcasting is that they want you to have experience to get jobs. And you can't get experience without jobs sometimes. Um, you have to kind of make it yourself. So um, I did everything that I possibly could. Um, I would spend my free nights and weekends, especially as a senior, um, doing games by myself. Um, I would take a mini disc recorder to Cornell's rink, which is right across on the other hill, and do women's hockey games by myself just to get more reps, just to get more tape that I can make a demo out of. And I wound up getting a job in the ECHL straight out of college with a tape of a game that I did by myself of Cornell women's hockey. That was all I had. So, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in school dedicated to what I wanted to do in life. And then, you know, during the summertime, I came back and I, I lived in New Jersey. And so I lived right outside New York City. So I, I had some good internships. I interned at ESPN Radio um, in New York City my first summer. And this was, I don't know, the very beginnings of ESPN Radio um, in, in New York City, specifically of 1050 at the time. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm saying I was an intern. I literally would hand out pamphlets in Times Square saying, listen to 1050 ESPN radio. It's new, new sports station. Here you go. Like that's what I was doing. I was a marketing intern. Right. So, um, I eventually worked up to answer some phones for afternoon shows and that was a big deal, but, um, I did that. I interned, I actually interned, came back and interned with John Sterling at the Yankees radio broadcast after my sophomore year and kind of completed that circle, which was kind of fun. Um, and, and I took advantage of the Ithaca College program where you get to study abroad, which is uh, Los Angeles um, in the communications department. It, it's kind of a loophole for journalism students. It's made for the film and the TV students that need to go to L.A. where they make film and, and television. Um, and the journalism kids just sign up for, for a semester in the sun. And so I interned at, uh, at, at Fox Sports West out there and at KNBC out there and just log tape and did some fun stuff. But um, got some experience and then started climbing the ladder um in the minor league radio side of things when I got out of school so it's uh it's been a journey yeah so obviously put together a great demo right out of school you go right into doing minor league baseball uh from there you just mentioned doing the minor league hockey um for you coming out did you have a mindset of 
I specifically want to ultimately try to do this one particular sport or you like, I'm going to do whatever I can. Um, it doesn't matter to me what sport I'm going towards. So um, I had kind of a turning point of my freshman year of, high, of college. Um, I always thought I would do baseball. I always thought I was going to be a baseball guy. Like I said, I had the background in baseball with my dad and with just my, my spark for broadcasting generated from baseball. And so that's kind of where I always envisioned doing growing up. Um, and then I called my first baseball game in college and it was hard, man. Like oh, it was hard yeah. and, and I was not prepared and you, you don't know how to prepare until you do something. Right. And then you're like, Oh man, I was not ready for this. Um, and I kind of had that moment where um, I didn't like it. Right. Like you, 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 you gear yourself up for, for 10 years. I had been going, I'm going to be a baseball broadcaster. Then I did my first baseball. I'm like, this is awful. I do not want to do this again. Um, you know, and it was just youth and inexperience and, and not really understanding what to do. But I, I called my dad afterwards. I'm like, dad, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I don't like it. He's like, it's your first game, man. Like your, your first game. And, and I think part of me was, I had almost forgotten that because I'd been so involved in being a broadcaster that I forgot I wasn't actually a broadcaster that I, this was the first game I'd ever called. Um, but that moment kind of opened me up to maybe it's not baseball. Maybe it's just sports and broadcasting. And that's when I, like I said, I did everything I could possibly do in college. I did basketball. I did football. I did baseball. I did hockey. I did soccer. I did all these different things. And I realized that it wasn't the sport. It was broadcasting that I enjoyed. And I enjoyed being in the element and doing that. And so um, I started doing some hockey games and I realized, and other people realized I was kind of good at it because I played hockey my whole life. Like baseball was always what I thought I would broadcast. Um, but being born in Wisconsin, you kind of play hockey. That's kind of what you do, right? In Milwaukee and Minnesota and you know Michigan, like you just play hockey. That's kind of, that's kind of how it goes. So I played hockey from the time I was four years old all the way up through high school. And I was actually on the club hockey team at Ithaca College. Like I played hockey my whole life. So I had a really good understanding for it. And so then when it became combining my passion for broadcasting with my my passion for hockey and my knowledge of hockey it, it kind of worked really well together um and so when i got out of school i got a job doing minor league baseball with the batavia muck dogs of the new york Penn league um and i got a job that fall doing the wheeling nailers of the echl and for for three years i bounced back and forth from hockey to baseball hockey to baseball no off season just grinding right on through and everybody would ask like what do you want to do? You want to do hockey or baseball? And my, my thought was at that time, let's see who takes me with it. Right. Like I'm looking for the next job in both sports. Let's see where it goes. And I was fortunate enough to get a job at the AHL level, which is, you know, a step below the NHL in Peoria, Illinois at, at 24 years old. And so that kind of sealed my fate. If you will, it, it stopped me from being able to go do baseball during the off season. Cause it was a longer season and things overlapped. And so kind of made my choice for me. And I was one step below the NHL. I thought I was in a pretty good spot. And so I kind of stuck with hockey, but uh, if, if a double A or triple A baseball team had called me the a month before, who knows where I'd be right now, but uh, hockey kind of took me with it. And, and I'm I'm very, very happy and thankful that it did. Yeah. You have a voice for hockey, I think. <laughs> and I think the, uh, the cadence the, the flow of each game is very different. The terminology, obviously, is very different. And I think, ultimately, you made the best decision. I don't have to tell you that. Um, so when you were working in, uh, with Peoria, you had the opportunity to fill in with the Blues a couple of times, right? So yeah. was that your first real taste of 
doing stuff for an NHL team and who was the person who helped you get that opportunity? Yeah. Chris Kerber is the guy. He's still the radio voice of the St. Louis blues. Um, so there, there's a couple of things here. Yes. I, I filled in for Chris for a span of three games. His dad had gotten sick and so he needed to, to leave the team. And so it was an emergency basis where, uh, Hey, can you get to Nashville tomorrow? I'm like, sure. Let's go. Um, but prior to that, um, I had, you know, St. Louis was three hours from Peoria. So it wasn't out of the realm to just shoot down and go to a game. And the, the Rivermen owned their own team bus. And every once in a while, they would take a bus full of fans down to a blues game. And when they did that, I would go and I would just jump in the cab of the truck and just head on down with the team, with, with, with the fans. Um, and I would get a, get a credential from the, the guys in St. Louis and they were great. And I would go up to the press box. And I think it was my second or third year. I'm 25 years old, probably maybe 26. Um, and I go up to the press box and I just stop in the radio booth. I like to, at that point, just as a networking opportunity, just say, Hey, remember me, that kid in Peoria, like I'm, I'm here if you, if you ever need anything. Um, and so I would go up and harass the broadcasters and say hi to John Kelly and Darren Pang. And then I would go next door and go to the radio guys and Chris Kerber's there. And, and I just said, Hey Kerbs, what's going on? He's like, Oh, Brennan, what are you doing here? It's like, just, you know, bus coming down, figured I'd, I'd jump in. He goes, you, uh, you want to call the second period? Me? Like this, this is at six o'clock for a seven o'clock game. And I'm like, are, are you serious? He goes, yeah, go get some game notes. Take a look at them. Come back at the end of the first period. Uh, okay. So I'm literally just grabbing game notes and, and just studying my heart's going a hundred miles an hour. Um, and, and he threw me on. I mean, he literally said, uh, you know, we had, there was three headsets. He was on one. I was on one. Kelly Chase was on the other as the, as the color guy. And he was just like, uh, for the second period, we're going to hand things over to the voice of the Peoria room. And here's Brendan Burke headset off, walked out of the room, just straight up. Here you go. And so, um, you know, baptism by fire. And so it was, a, it was a, a St. Louis blues against Columbus blue jackets game. And, and I did the second period and it was amazing. And it was also a turning point where it was like, hey, you can do this, man. Like, it's just hockey. Um, and so I kind of got that confidence of being able to do it um, and, and a really cool experience. And so that, I'm so thankful for that. And at that point, now I've got a, I've got a demo, right? Like, I've got NHL demo. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you, move- before, the, before the game ended, how quickly were you going to the producers saying, I need, <laughs> the, I need, I need that tape? Oh. Yeah, no, and they knew, right? Like they knew, they knew that it was going to be a big deal. And so they had it ready for me. They're like, I will email you links to it. It's in a Dropbox. We'll get it to you. You know, I had it, you know, it was all edited up into highlights and all this kind of, it was fantastic. They were, they were really good. Um, But so I I was able to do a period there and just kind of, uh, you know, it reinforced. I'm like this, I need to get here. Like, this is where I need to be. This was so much fun. Um, And, and so I I was able to do that. And uh, the next year it worked out where, the the Rivermen were playing a game in Minnesota against the the Wilds AHL team. The Blues were there too. I saw him at morning skate. He goes, "You want another period?" I'm like, "Absolutely." Came up and did it again. Um, so so a couple of times he had given me and and the the story is and it's a great story. Um, I forget who it was, but somebody did that for him when he was in Springfield in the uh-huh. AHL, and he used that tape to get the Blues job. And he has always tried to pay it forward. And I'm not the only person he's done that for. Um, he did that for Tom Callahan, who was in Peoria before me, who wound up uh, briefly being the voice of the Nashville Predators. Um, he's done that for a few other AHL guys of just, hey, it's a it's a Tuesday night in January. It's the second period in Blues and Blue Jackets. Like, here you go. Like, this means way more to you than it does to me, and you're not going to screw it up. 
Um, so he, he's, he's just that kind of guy. And so, um, but by doing those periods and showing everybody that I could do them when he needed to step away from the team, I was an easy phone call. They knew that I could handle it. And so they called me, I scrambled to Nashville. I wound up doing three games right before Christmas, uh, that, that next season. And, uh, and from there, I really had an NHL tape and some good NHL experience that, that has helped me, you know, helped me ultimately to get where I am today. So, um, tip of the cap to Chris Kerber and, and, and giving me that opportunity to, uh, to get here because that was a big step and a big part of it. Who's got to be in the right place at the right time. Yep. Wow. That's, that's an unbelievable story. I've never heard of a story like that where he was just able to get you in there and do that on the fly. That is incredible. Uh, so cool. Uh, but you did work elsewhere in, in between you moved to work for Utica, Utica comments. Um, so how long were you there? I believe you were there. What? Two years or three, three. years. Three years. Three, no. So you worked there three years and you did three years there. And then ultimately uh, you got the call to replace Howie Rose and yeah. work for the Islanders. So um, who else was instrumental in getting you there back here to yeah. New York? Well, it, it was an interesting process, right? So, so the Peoria Riffman were owned by the St. Louis Blues um, and they sold the team. They sold the franchise. Um, unbeknownst to all the employees, they sold the franchise. And so one day I went to work and all of a sudden it was all over the news that there would be no more Peoria Riverman. And uh, later that day found out I was going to be unemployed. And so I was, I was literally unemployed. I was collecting unemployment, living in Peoria, Illinois, not having any idea where my life was headed. I was, I was out of a job, out of hockey, out of sports in general, and just kind of waiting and hoping that I would get that next opportunity. And fortunately enough for me, um, they sold the franchise to the Vancouver Canucks who placed it in Utica, New York. Um, if they had placed it in Canada, which they were certainly looking at, and they've now moved their AHL affiliate to Canada, I, I would have been out of a job completely. Now, because they put it in New York, it enabled me to try and get my job back. And I did. Um, you know, I was pretty convinced that I could, I was pretty convinced of myself that I could convince whoever was in charge that I was the best person with the job because it was my job. Like it was literally my job. And so um, strangely enough, Utica, New York is where my wife was from. My wife was, was born and raised in Herkimer, which is just down the road from Utica a little bit. And so it just felt like, all right, this is, if they had placed it somewhere else, maybe it wouldn't have been as automatic of, Hey, you need to go get this job. I had been in doing pro hockey for eight years already. Maybe it was time for something new. Um, but putting it there specifically and having her have the ability to kind of go home and her parents still live there and her grandma still lived there um, to go home and do that was, was pretty special. So Robert Esch, former NHL goaltender um, was, was the president of that hockey team. And so with, with a few connections, it was able to get his phone number and give him a call and kind of convince him like, Hey, you don't need to look anywhere else. Like I'm your guy. Um, and, and credit to him, he, he fell for it. So um, so, so I, I was hired there and, and worked there for three years and, um, and, and worked really hard and waited for that opportunity and had a couple of close calls with other job openings that ultimately didn't happen. And it led me to, to applying for the Islanders job when Howie Rose decided he was, he was done doing two sports for 20 years and was just going to do baseball. And so, um, it became a, an open competition to, to replace him and, so thankful that um, everything, the stars really aligned to, to have me be that guy. So, um, you know, it was, uh, it was quite a journey. They say you apply for the job. I mean, this isn't a regular job here. There's not, there's not <laughs> only, I only owe so many of these positions. 
What was that process like? Did you know somebody within the organization reaching out to them? Uh, did you have an agent or something? How did you get your, your demo into the right hands in order to you be considered for the job? And then did you ultimately have to maybe come in, call a fake game with a monitor? And how did that process go for you? Yeah, it was it was a long process. Uh, I, I was sitting in my office in Utica in, I think it was late May, and saw on Twitter, whatever, it was a, a Neil Best story that Howie Rose is uh, retiring from the Islanders broadcast. And you get excited. Um, as an AHL broadcaster, it doesn't even matter if you're going to get that job. You just want to see movement. You want to see, all right. Howie Rose is leaving. Islanders TV is open. Maybe Islanders radio, maybe Chris King slides up into that spot. Now Islanders radio is open. Now you can go for that. Like you just hope maybe somebody from a smaller market, if it's Columbus decides to go after the Islanders job, now that one's open. You just want the most amount of opportunities to apply for a job and have people listen to your stuff that maybe you catch the right person on the right day that says, hey, this guy's good. Let's get him. So you get excited just that there's any sort of openings in the NHL. But obviously with it being Howie, with it being New York City, where I somewhat grew up just outside of it. That's where I was really excited because I was like, all right, Hey, whether it's TV, whether it's radio, there's an opening with the Islanders. This would be a great spot for me. Um, I do have an agent. And so immediately I called him and he said, we're on it. Um, and, uh, I have had a relationship with Howie prior to this because as I said, my dad's a sports writer. He did cover the Mets for a few years. When I was in college, he covered the Mets. And so he and Howie had known each other. And Howie was a guy that when I was in college was somebody that I could call for advice, somebody that I could send my, my tape to and have him critique it, um, both baseball and hockey, which was kind of nice, and, and kind of give me pointers. So um, that was a different relationship, right? That's, that's, a, that's a college kid and a professional in the industry. Um, but, I, but I knew Howie and I had his number. I had his, his email address. And so... Um, I kind of sent him a note like a, Hey, congratulations type of note to just be like, Hey, remember <laughs> me. Um, and, and he responded and I, I should probably find the email. I probably have it somewhere, but he responded. It was a one word email or one line email. It just said, don't worry. They know exactly who you are. COVID-19 is still around, but that doesn't mean the army ROTC programs are not there for you. Earn scholarships for school and pursue the career you want. The leadership developing Army ROTC classes will give any full-time student the focus and resources that can open doors down the road. Start sharpening the skills that will carve out your future today. Learn how at GoArmy.com ROTC. Army ROTC, now accepting college scholarship applications. Visit GoArmy.com slash money for college. Get running this fall at Dunkin' with $2 medium iced coffees from 2 to 6 p.m. Try any of Dunkin's delicious iced coffee, like their signature original blend. Or treat yourself to mocha, caramel, or the fall favorite, pumpkin. Always freshly brewed, made just the way you like it. Make time for happy hour and enjoy a $2 medium iced coffee from 2 to 6 p.m. Washington, D.C. runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusions apply. And so it was like, all right, now we're, now we're talking. So, um, you know, how we had at least put the bug in their ear, like, Hey, this kid in Utica is not bad. And so then it became sending stuff and then they, they heard it. They liked it. They said, send us more stuff, send them more stuff. Um, and worked my way into the round of interviews, in-person interviews back when you used to meet people face to face, um, you know, in the, in the old, old times. Um, so, you know, I went down to New York city and I, I had an interview with the executives at MSG and I think they interviewed 10 people at that point. Like it was just, I'd been, there were hundreds of people that applied, right? Like I had been narrowed down to the top 10. 
Um, and then after the interview round, I think it was five people that got to audition for the job. And so they brought us in individually. I don't even know who else was, was scheduled um, to do it, but I can't, went in on a July morning at 9 a.m. and had to call a game, which was very unnatural. It's like 100 degrees outside. It's nine o'clock in the morning. And you're like, oh, yeah, pretend it's January and call a hockey game. Um, so, I, so I did that. And, and it was great because they brought in Butch Moore, right? Like Butch was there to provide his normal analysis to the game. And so you could see how we worked together um, and we could see how, how I could call a game. But it was, it was hard, right? It's off a monitor, which at that point I had never done. Never called a game off a monitor in my life. Um, you're, you're calling a game, um, you're prepared for it, but it's still, it's, it's, it's awkward and it's off a monitor and you're, you have the nerves of your entire career riding on these next few minutes, right? Like this is your opportunity. All those 10 years of minor league hockey that I had was only to get me in this door, right? Like that was all that it was going to do was get me in that door. Now the next 10 minutes of my life are going to decide where this goes. So it was kind of a big moment, right? Like you've got all of that inside you. Plus it's July. I haven't called a game since late April. So you're not, you're not in rhythm, right? Like I haven't called a game in months. So I remember going through it and I called the, the first segment. I think that you get and you throw it to commercial break, you know, fake commercial break. And then you get one, you did another segment and threw it to another break. And I was like, all right, like now, I'm, now I feel okay. Like now I'm ready to go. Like, let's, let's do this. And I hear mayor. Hey, thank you so much for coming. That was great. Damn it. It's over. Uh, that was it. So they're going to judge you off what you had already done before you felt like you were actually okay. Um, but, you know, thankfully enough, I, I did a good enough job on that. And, and, and I guess I didn't piss off Butch Goring in the process where he's like, no, not that guy. Um, and, and they, they, again, took a, took a long time. It was like another month of kind of waiting and, you know, updates of, oh yeah, we're, we're, I think it was just people taking vacation, right? Like it's the middle of the summer. People are like, oh, that guy's not in the office. We'll make the decision next week type of thing. Um, and it, it was early August when they finally offered me the job. So um, from from late May to early August and, and then um, the scramble towards, you know, moving my whole life to Brooklyn and getting ready for the season in, in a month's time was uh, it, it was a fun time in my life. I'll tell you what. For you, what's the biggest difference when it comes to broadcasting for radio versus TV? Maybe on TV, you figure you can allow to breathe a little more. Radio, you got to be on top of everything. But you personally, do you? change the way you call a game between the two mediums. Yeah, the, the, there's there's two major differences for me. One is that uh, television is an analyst-driven medium. You can see who has the puck, where they are on the ice, what team they're on. You can see all that kind of stuff. So what you can't see is what's inside a, a guy who's won four Stanley Cups head, right? Like that, I want to hear what he has to say watching the game. And on TV, 100%, my job is to make sure the analyst is doing his job setting him up, asking him questions, giving him room to talk. That's what a TV play-by-play -play guy should be doing. It is, it is giving the analyst room to shine. On radio, you can't do that. On radio, your job is to inform the people of what they're not seeing. So that right there is the biggest, the biggest difference for me in terms of how you treat a radio broadcast versus how you treat a TV broadcast. On top of that, you know, radio stays the same. Radio, your job is to inform them of what they can't see and to provide much detail and color and make it entertaining as you can. Um, on TV, I kind of view the play-by-play -play role more of a, you have to find a way to transfer the energy and emotion that is in the building to the people at home that they wouldn't get, right? Like you think about, I mean, you, you can think about games this year where there's no crowd, 
right? Even with no crowd, if the play-by-play guy is doing his job, you still feel it. You don't if it's on mute, right? You can watch a game on mute. You don't feel it. If the play-by-play guy is doing his job, you feel it. And I want the person watching at home to feel the same way as the guy watching in the fifth row. That's how I view my job on TV. I'm trying to get that energy through to the person watching. And so it's less about the information and more about the delivery, to be honest. Like it's more about that cadence, that pace, that emotion, that energy that you can bring through if you can enunciate or punctuate at the right moment to kind of get everybody's heart to jump and skip a beat a little bit. You know, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that, oh, you just missed it. And you want to feel that, not just hear it. You want to feel it. Um, and, and so that's how I treat the difference between, and you can do that on TV. I'm not saying you, you can do that on radio. I'm not saying you can't, I'm just saying that that's your primary job because you don't have to fill in all the information, but you have to find a way to get that feeling through the TV. Yeah. And it definitely depends on, you know, the arena as well. Obviously with Barclays didn't really get as loud. Uh, NASA Coliseum, absolutely wild. You could hear it. You can sense it on TV when there was fans there. Um, now you're going to have a nice new arena, UBS arena. Have you gotten any sort of sneak peeks in there as to, as far as what your vantage point is going to be for calling these games? Yeah, I have been in there. I've been in there a couple of times. Um, you know, still have to wear the hard hat and it was still dirt floors when I was in there, but, um, it's going to be, it's going to be incredible. And I keep seeing, you know, people send me pictures of what it looks like in there now. And it's, it's amazing. Cause last time, like I said, I was in there, it was kind of dirt floors and you know, all the windows hadn't been placed in. You were still kind of inside, kind of outside type of thing. I mean, and now it's got a video board hanging in it and seats in it. And so it's, it's getting close and you can start to, to, I guess, marry the divisions and the drawings and the renderings to actually what it looks like in real life. And it is, it is going to be spectacular. So, um, you know, I, I'm, it's not lost on me that I have the opportunity to be part of a team that is opening a brand new building. That is, you know, there are broadcasters that work for a team for 25 years and never get that opportunity, right? If you come in at the wrong time and they opened it, you know, five years earlier, you're going to spend your whole career in whatever arena that is. Right. So um, I, I'm very fortunate that, that I came in at this time and, and I'm, I'm glad Howie hasn't come out of retirement and stolen it back just because of this, because uh, you know, how he, how he left at the same time, the new ownership came in, you know, how he left and John Ledecky and Scott Malkin came in as the owners the same summer that I came in. The last part of that process, by the way, of getting hired was a one-on-one interview with John Ledecky. Um, and it was, it's one of the best nights of my life. It wasn't a uh, boardroom meeting. We literally met at City Field for a Yankees Mets game and hung out and watched some baseball and talked and just, you know, made sure that he felt comfortable that I was the guy for his team. And so, um, you know, he and I have had a great relationship since then. But I think the one thing for Howie is that he never got to experience what life was like as an Islander broadcaster with the new ownership. And I'm fortunate that that's the only thing that I've been able to experience. So, um, he, he went through a lot of lean years and a lot of interesting times. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that I, I kind of came out on the other end, but he, he laid the groundwork for what I'm about to experience with the new arena um, and this new ownership group. It's, it's been great. So I'm excited to have come in at a time where the team has gone like this and the ownership has gone like this and the arena has gone like this. And I'm just hanging on for the ride. Yeah. How we got to go deal with John Spanos and all that wildness, but uh, you know, now, now, you know, the new arena, it's, it's out there a bit. Uh, you know, what's your commute like, or are you going to interrupt your marriage to bring hockey season again? Perhaps going to have to impact your, you know, love that sign there. You're going to have to impact your, your day, long commute. How does that all factor into your, your game plan here for the season? 
Yeah, I, I'm out east already, so it took me almost a half hour to get to the Coliseum. So it'll probably take me about ten minutes more to go a little bit farther west to uh, to get through. To, How was your commute to the Barclays Center? So when when I got the job, the Islanders were exclusively in Brooklyn. There was right. no Coliseum right. games, so I moved to Brooklyn. So I I walked to the games. Wow, it was nice. you, wow. you can't beat that. It was I was I was literally home by the time Shannon was done with her post game show. I mean, I just wow. walked out the door, walked down the street, and I was home. Um, so it's hard to, it's hard to beat that. I had no problem with the games in Brooklyn. Um, I would leave, I would jump in the shower at three 30 and I had a four 30 production meeting, just right. boom, walk over. Um, obviously when things were going back and forth, um, you know, I could tell once they, they solidified that they were breaking ground in the UBS and they were splitting games to Coliseum. Then I moved out. I live in Huntington now, um, out on the Island. So, um, it, it'll be a little bit longer and, and, and I would actually carpool in with Butch Goring. We went to Brooklyn the last couple of years. So, um, I would drive to Butch's house. Um, Butch and I and one of the uh, the head office official, we would all drive together into Brooklyn and, you know, it'd make it easier to park one car than three. And we had a nice little spot to go to. And, um, you know, it, it made the days a little bit longer, but, um, you know, ultimately not too bad. We, we go at good times, right? Like we're not going at seven o'clock. We're not going for seven o'clock. We're there. We're there by four and, right. and we're out after the game. So, um, you know, traffic usually wasn't too bad, but, you know, a little, little bit longer of a commute than it is to stay here on the island. All right, now I'm going to ask you my favorite question to ask broadcasters. Yeah. Joe, Joe knows where I'm going in this. I know where. I'm I want to know your, uh, you know, your pregame, during game routine as far as food and beverage intake. Obviously, you know, it's not like if you go to the bathroom, I got to run. You know, you have you have a very few, limited time between periods. If you're going to overtime, forget about it. Um, and you know, you want to have energy. We've had different people on. Now, Doc Emmerich was on with us. He said, I always ate oatmeal. I feel like it gave me more energy boost. If other people saying, oh, well, maybe I didn't want to eat too much before the game. I don't want to get sick. Um, other people are like, well, in between periods, I'm crushing hot pretzels and cookies and whatnot. So just curious to hear your, you know, your routine as far as like, are you eating before the game between the periods? And, you know, are you drinking water? Try not to take in too many beverages. Maybe you're a lozenge guy. Uh, just want to hear your whole process there. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not one of those guys that overthinks it too much. I, I make sure I eat, um, you know, normally we eat at 430 or so when we get there kind of back again, when they had media rooms and press meals and things like that, just kind of eat when you get to the arena, at four, you know, 435 o'clock, just so you're kind of done with that. And you want to make sure you're not hungry at eight o'clock, right? Um, you know, that's what you, you don't want to be thinking about anything other than the game. You don't want to be like, man, I'm starving. I can't wait till this game's over so I can get some pizza. Like that's not a thought you want going through your mind while you're calling game. Um, it's more for the mental side of it than anything else. Um, so uh, I don't necessarily eat anything specific. I'll pretty much just eat whatever is available. Um, and then I, I just, I drink water constantly. And, and, you know, I'm fortunate enough on TV that I don't have to fill the intermissions all that often. Um, sometimes in the third period, overtimes you don't get that break between overtime or a shootout and sometimes it gets a little uncomfortable but um you know I, I i drink bottles of water they have a case of water just sitting there um my stage manager uh jt is is fantastic i don't even have to open my water bottles he he he, untw he twists them off the top right. and just hands them to me um but it's it's uh i i drink one and when i say constantly i mean when butch is talking i'm drinking water like it's not just it was not just a commercial breaks like you're holding down that cough button and there you go golf golf yep so um you know it's just one of those things where i'm just constantly constantly drinking water so um 
I, but if there was if there was a seltzer there or there was something you know something else that my my partner for lacrosse uh, he loves Lacroix so we drink a little uh, Pomplemousse Lacroix during lacrosse broadcast like I I don't mind I don't mind that either sometimes the bubbles are not the ideal thing to drink but um, you know and and the one nice thing about Barclays Center which um, since we've been talking about it is we had a, a low vantage point of Barclays. We we're kind of right in the crowd where, where radio, where radio was across the way. And a lot of other people were upstairs or in a corner upstairs. Um, we were on suite level basically. And so we didn't have a press room to grow and grab a cup of coffee, which I will do at some point in the second intermission, usually to wake yourself up if you feel like you need it. Um, but we actually are, are right around the corner from where the owner's suite is. And the owners gave us full blessing and carte blanche to come in and grab whatever we need from their fully catered suite uh, nice. during those games. And so uh, Butch and I would often go in and grab a coffee or maybe some random snack or dessert or whatever is there. Um, there's some really good food in there. So a lot of times we would, we would find a way to grab and go in there and grab some stuff. And I did make a request that our vantage point at, at UBS arena is close to the owner's suite. Again, we'll see if that actually happens, but that was, that was a nice perk to have to be able to walk in there and grab whatever we wanted. So that was fun. Yeah. That's doesn't get much better than that going into the owner's suite. I could imagine now with NBC, obviously you get that opportunity. Was that something that you were able to get based on the fact that you're working with the Islanders job. Um, and then ultimately you mentioned, you know, lacrosse, you do a lot of lacrosse for the premier lacrosse uh, for, N for NBC. Um, how did you, you know, get that opportunity and what was your lacrosse experience prior to ultimately becoming a broadcaster for it? Zero. Um, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, so, so, you know, the NBC relationship is, uh, is, is fun. I mean, I, I assume that the Islanders, being in New York helped me get on the TV of the people that make decisions at NBC a little bit more frequently um, because they're based out of Stanford, Connecticut. Um, so they don't need a special package to watch the Islanders. They just need to flip their, their remote a little bit. Um, and so you've got, you know, you know, the people that make the decisions at NBC at home can watch the Islanders devils and Rangers without, without even trying. So I, I'm, I'm assuming that helped my exposure um, and then it's just something where you, you hope you catch their eye. Um, you know, everybody in the league wants to do games on national television, right? So it's, it's not something that you really apply for because they know who you are and you know who they are. And if they need you, they'll call you type of thing. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, um, you know, get a call towards the end of my very first year in the NHL, which I never really expected. I was. The been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Uh, you know, one step at a time, right? Like you just got to the NHL, you kind of skipped the radio step, you kind of skipped the small market thing and just went to big market television. Like, let's, let's calm down. And so I, I think in my head, I never really verbalized it, but I think it was like a, a five-year thing. Like, all right, let's do five years. And then hopefully I can get on the radar of an NBC or whoever has the rights and start doing some national games. So for them to call me or my agent, really, um, at the end of my first season, Islanders were, were missing the playoffs and just say, you know, we'd love to bring you on to do some playoff games was, was mind blowing. Um, and they 
initially offered me, and again, this is kind of the same, it's like trial and error. They're going to give me a shot. They offered me games one through four of an Edmonton San Jose series, which is late night, right? East coast, the worst time slot, which not complaining. I'll take it for sure. Give me the West coast all day long. Give me the Canadian team all day long, right? You're not even talking about two full American markets. And it was a back bench game, which is before we did games off a of monitor, we would do games in person, but using the home television feed. So we would be doing the San Jose broadcast. If you watch San Jose's broadcast and you watched NBC's broadcast, they would look identical, but they would sound different. And so we didn't have control over the picture. So if I wanted to talk about Connor McDavid and they are showing a shot of Martin Jones, sorry, we're looking at Martin Jones while you're talking about Connor McDavid. We didn't have the ability to kind of marry that up. So it was kind of like a, a half broadcast, right? So it was like, this is where you start. You're starting with games one through four. We're not giving you any clinchers. You're just doing games one through four for a West Coast feed and, and a backbench game. Fine. Happy to do it. Um, turns into a five-game series. They go, okay, you can do game five. Turns into a six-game series. You can do game six. Great. Got a clincher. Got to do six games. Series is over. Flew all the way home. Happy with myself. Felt like, all right, I did a pretty good job on my first national th- in my first national exposure. Um, great. Went to bed, woke up the next day to an email. You want to come back and do Anaheim Edmonton? Jump back on a plane. Wound up doing a couple of games in the second round. And it was just kind of like a you kind of earned it as you went along. And I did those those first four games. They decided it was worth another game. And then I did that first series. And they're like, you know what? Let's have them do a couple of games in the second round. And then the next year it was kind of, okay, now you've done it. Now you get a couple of regular season games and just kind of progress that way. And so, um, you know, I'm fortunate I was able to get that opportunity. I was fortunate I didn't screw it up enough to, uh, to get kicked off of that opportunity. And um, it just kind of progressed through my five seasons in the NHL to last year. I did, I don't even know, 30 regular season games. I did, I wound up doing close to hundred games last year, even though there was a shortened season. So, um, you know, my, my proximity to the, the Stanford, Connecticut studios helped where, you know, Kenny and I could just were an hour away and just run up and do games whenever I didn't have an Islander game. So um, really fortunate that the NBC opportunity came about and, and I was able to, uh, to do as many games as I did in the last five years. Yeah. Was it, was it easy for you to work, work with MSG networks in regards to doing that extra work? And are there, were there times where you had to turn down a game because obviously you're committed to the Islanders and what was, what's that relationship like for you? You know, being able to go to your bosses and saying, Hey, I have this opportunity to do something here. Maybe it's going to impact my arrival time for something else to travel or whatnot. And how important was was that in order for you to, to get in the national stage? Yeah, no, MSG has been great. And, and they've been very, very okay with me being able to do anything I could that didn't impact the Islander broadcast, right? So if I was, um, you know, if I was at home on a Tuesday and home on a Thursday and they wanted me to go somewhere, uh, or they wanted me to go to Stanford on Wednesday and come back, no problems, right? Um, you know, travel obviously is a little bit different, you know, so in, during a regular season, it's, you know, you don't want to necessarily risk flying in on the day of a game and miss that. So there's been some times where NBC's asked me to do games that just haven't worked out. And there's been some times where, where MSG has gone. Um, listen, it's, it's April. It's a morning flight. You've got all day to get back. We're not as concerned that you're going to miss a flight because of weather or whatnot. So yeah, you can do that game in, in DC and we'll see you, you know, at, in Columbus on Monday type of thing. So, the, you know, they've been reasonable when it comes to not just a blanket no you can't go and do that game they've they've worked with me on some things um they've coordinated together 
um, on playoff schedules where it's like, Hey, we want him to do these games. Are you okay with this? And we've got that. So, um, you know, it's, it's been great. And obviously they have to deal with, with um, you know, with Kenny's schedule as well. So, you know, they've got a good relationship and they've been really, uh, really nice about being able to, you know, understand that, yes, um, my full-time job is the New York Islanders and that takes precedence, but also how, um, you know, how important it is for, for me and for my career. And, and I would imagine to have MSG go, Hey, we've got the, we've got two of the top, you know, national hockey guys on our roster too, here in, in New York city is a pretty cool thing for them. You know, they've got Mike Breen on the, on the basketball side, like they've got some, some high-end guys that do a lot of national games. So. Um, you know, it's, it's a great company to work for and, and fully understanding that, that it's, it's, uh, it's a good thing for everybody if we're on the national stage as well. Happy you mentioned travel because I wanted to ask you some of your favorite places that you've gotten to travel to uh, since you got the, the Islanders job. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I always kind of say Montreal when I'm asked that question. It's a, it's a, it's a cool city, number one, um, but the Bell Center is a really special place to watch a game. Um, it is the largest building in the NHL in terms of capacity, right? It's more than 20,000 fans. They are all engaged and loud in two different languages. Um, and, and it's a really cool experience with all of, you know, obviously it's not the forum, but all the history of, you know, the Stanley cups that have been won by that franchise um, and just the, the diehard fan base that they have there in Montreal. It's a, it's a special place to, uh, to watch a game hockey bucket list wise. Um you know, and then, you know, the, the rest of the NHL is great. I mean, the, the traveling is one of the, the best parts of my job, which is, um, you know, unfortunate that it was so limited the last, the last couple of seasons of being able to do that. But, um, you know, there are some beautiful places like Vancouver is a beautiful city. Um, you know, Vegas is, is fun. Like the, the atmosphere they've created in, in that, that, that um, arena in Vegas. And what's really cool is um, for Vegas is how they've taken over that whole city. Like there are yeah. logos, everywhere there is random people wearing their gear everywhere and it has gone from you know because they were the first i'm sure there's raiders stuff now i think they put an eye patch on the sphinx the other day um but <laughs> you know like seeing the the statue of liberty at new york new york with a with a golden knights jersey on like they've taken over that city which is a really cool thing to see um you know not only to have a city embrace the team but to have it just be a dominant fixture in what is Vegas, right? Like, so that's, that's a pretty cool market to have, to have seen from its conception um, all the way through. And I'm, and I'm excited about Seattle. I'm excited to see what Seattle's all about. Um, January 4th, you should be there. If, if you're allowed to travel, Islanders at the Kraken. Yeah. So, um, you know, that'll be, that's a great city. I've never really spent a lot of time in Seattle. I'm excited to spend some time in Seattle and then to, to witness a new arena and the birth of a new franchise and, um, you know, kind of see that from the ground level. Um, will be a lot of fun. Last question here. Obviously, the Blues games for the, the sentimental reasons and what they did for your career up until that point after it were pretty special for you. Uh, what were your favorite regular season games or playoff games that you could list off the top of your head? I know it's very difficult to answer a question like that, but do any of them stick out uh, immediately and were ultimately really, really special for you to be a part of? Well, I'll build off your your point about the St. Louis games, which are to, to be able to go back and do a game in St. Louis after where I come from was pretty cool. I remember a game my first year was in December um, in Buffalo. Um, now, Buffalo is four hours from Utica, New York, but also pretty much the closest NHL team that you can get to Utica. Um, so I made a trip from Utica to Buffalo to see a game. Um, and it was a, it happened to be a Sabres Rangers game. Um, 
a year, the season before I got the Islanders job. And again, I, I have enough contacts. I got a credential. I went up to harass the broadcasters like I always do. Um, <laughs> and, and I went into the MSG booth and I saw Sam Rosen, who, who I'd spoke, who I'd known a little bit. And I just said, hi, Sam. And that's what I was doing. I just, I just came to hang out. And he said, well, you're welcome to sit in here if you like. And so I sat with Sam um, kind of behind him and just kind of watched not really the game, just watched him, his rapport with Joe Micheletti, his interaction with the stage manager. I had a headset on so I could hear the truck and talking to him and just kind of get a feel for what he was going through and kind of study the, the TV side of it. Um, so, you know, I, and, I, and I remember I took a picture of his, his back, right? He's working and I'm sitting behind him and I took a picture on my phone of like, this is pretty cool to be able to watch Sam do this. And not, not a year later, I walked back into that booth and it was mine. And that was a really cool moment to just walk. And I don't even remember the game, right? Like, I don't remember what happened. It didn't matter. Like it was just being back in that booth for the first time was, was a really special moment for me to be able to kind of, um, you know, go, wow, this has been quite a year. Um, so that, that was really cool. But, um, you know, games off the top of my head. I mean, um, home opener first year, um, Josh Bailey wins it in overtime against Anaheim just kind of like your first home game and it ends with an overtime win and just kind of the excitement in the first win of the season. Um, you know, that's a fun one to look back on, uh, you know, and then you've got the playoff games are all great, right? Like the playoff games are playoff games. So be able to do playoff games and um, you know, my first playoff game for the Islanders at the Coliseum was uh, you know, another Josh Bailey overtime winner against Pittsburgh and kind of that, that year where everybody left the Islanders for dead to have them, you know, make the playoffs and, and have home ice advantage against Pittsburgh and win that game um, and kind of start this, this run they've been on. Um, you know, that one certainly is, is one to, to look back on and remember as, as one of the, the more fun games that I've done. And the first, the first game back at the Coliseum, right? Like I, people forget, and, and I'm happy they do is that I had never called a game at the Coliseum until they went back in January of 2019. So um, that night to be able to, it always felt like something was missing as an Islander broadcaster to have never done a game at the Coliseum. It felt like, felt like I was cheating. Like it felt like all of the fans were like, Oh, you should have done a game at the Coliseum. Like you don't know what it's like. And so to be able to go back there and do a game at the Coliseum. And that was a memorable game against Columbus that they, they came from behind and won that game. That was a fun night. Um, and then I think that, uh, anybody you'd ask who was there, you, you, you kind of have to say John Tavares coming back to the Coliseum as a Maple Leaf it was one of the most memorable regular season games um, probably that building has ever seen. Um, that was uh, that was a circus that night, and it was um, oh, it, it was it, a very it, colorful it a fun night. night. Yeah, it, it was a colorful it was, night. I it certainly it was memorable. That. It was memorable. <laughs> that's for sure. We'll leave it at that. Thank you, Brendan, for doing this with us. We really appreciate it. I thought you had amazing stories, awesome stories, unique stories. Uh, it was really, really cool that you got to kind of meet some broadcasters, some really great guys. I mean, Pangers, unbelievable. Uh, Sam Rosen, obviously, Nick and I love him, legend here in New York. Um, but again, thank you for taking your time, took a little extra time with us. Certainly, we definitely appreciate it. What we do here is we always give our guests the last word. So if there's anything else you would like to share or promote, season's coming up just a few short weeks preseason's gonna get here uh i'm very excited for hockey season and nick and i we wish you and your family the best of luck the healthiest season coming up and 
I'm not going to say go Islanders, but <laughs> we wish, we wish you, wish, wish you luck with the, the gig. Well, I, I appreciate that guys. And, and, and thanks Steve both for having me on, I guess, uh, the one thing I'll say, because you, you mentioned a couple of people, the, the best thing, and I, I said travel is a great part of my job. The best thing about what I do is being able to interact with some of the best people in the sports world. And that's that's the broadcasters. So, um, you know, whether it's it's Sam Rosen or Joe Micheletti or, uh, you know, we're going to say goodbye to Rick Jenner right this year in his final season in Buffalo and just all the people that I get to meet along the way. Um, you know, one of my favorite things about each game is, is meeting up with the other broadcasters before the game and just kind of, uh, you know, chewing things over and, and exchanging notes and just, you know, bouncing back and forth. We'll go into each other's booths between periods and things like that and just have fun. So, um, you know, one of the best parts about the gig that, that nobody talks about is, is that it's full of a bunch of great people that get to do a very exclusive job around the NHL. And I don't think, I don't think any of us take it for granted. And I think that's kind of the, the mentality that we have and we all know how fortunate we are to be where we are. And so, um, it's, uh, it, it'll be great when we get back on the road and can, uh, kind of rekindle some of those friendships, uh, in person again this year. So that's, that's probably what I'm most looking forward to here this season. If we can get back out on the road and start to see each other once again. No doubt about it. It's a, it's a real camaraderie. Uh, you're all in very unique positions and not too many of you. So it's really a, it's really a brotherhood and you can kind of sense that, um, it comes across when you, when we see people interact with each other, but Brendan, we want to thank you so much for your time. We appreciated your stories. That's going to do it here for this episode of Read Arm Right for our very special guest, Brendan Burke, and my co-host, Joe Calabrese. I'm Nick Durst, and this has been You Know I'm Right. Every day, thousands of hackers try to steal your crypto. But Arculus uses air-gapped technology by forming a protective barrier that insulates you from hackers and secures your crypto. Order yours at GetArculus.com.